Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join Associate Pastor Reverend Dave Kiefer. Dr. Walker started our study of the book of Galatians by pointing out how alarmed the Apostle Paul was that the churches in Galatia seemed to be deserting the gospel for a different gospel. And Chris summarized how this counterfeit gospel snuck into the church through a group of what we call Judaizers who preached that to become a Christian, you first need it to become a Jew. And Paul's message of salvation by grace through faith was so drastically different than the Judaizers' message of salvation by law and ritual through circumcision that Paul said it amounted to abandoning the true gospel which he had handed down to them and which they had first believed. Now this morning, we will look at how Paul helps the Galatian churches get back on track. And a couple questions will guide us through our text this morning. Uh, and it will help us understand what's happening in Paul's day and then how it applies to our day. And so the three questions we're going to ask is, is, how does the gospel come to us? Second, why does it matter? And third, how do people try to get around it and how effective are they? So let's read the text and then I'll pray for God to open our eyes and we'll jump in. We're looking at Galatians chapter 1 verses 11 through 24. Paul writes, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former, former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. And then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none other of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And in what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. And then I went into the region of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They were only hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Let us pray. God, we ask that you open our eyes to understand your word, what it says, what it means, and how it applies. We need your spirit. We need your guidance. Inform our minds. Pierce our hearts and equip us for service in your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So that first question is, how does the gospel come to us? 
The passage shows us it comes in four ways. By revelation, by grace, according to God's wisdom, and with God's authority. First, the gospel comes by divine revelation, not human invention. When Paul wrote his letter to the Galatians, both he and the gospel were under attack. Apparently, certain Jewish leaders who identified as Christians had come from Jerusalem to correct Paul's teaching. But what they taught was so totally different from Paul's teaching that they had to discredit his message. And so they labeled him a second-class apostle with a second-hand gospel. And as Philip Ryken pointed out, opponents from the mother church in Jerusalem believed that Jerusalem was the only place that the right message about the gospel could be vetted. And so Paul was not to be trusted because he did not receive the gospel from an authorized dealer. Paul defends himself and his gospel by clarifying how the gospel came to him in verse 11. He says, "'For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ.'" See, Paul's defense here is that the gospel came directly to him from the risen Jesus, who revealed himself to Paul. It's not a secondhand account. Paul had a face-to-face encounter with the resurrected Jesus on his way to persecuting Christians on the road to Damascus. And unlike the Galatians in verse 12, Paul did not receive it from any man. No Christian witness to Paul, no Christian discipled Paul, no Christian taught Paul. Why not? Well, probably because at the time, Christians were hiding from Paul. For Paul, as he reminds us in verse 13, was persecuting the church of God and violently tried to destroy it. And as in verse 14, he indicates that his motivation for doing this was his zealousy for Judaism and Jewish tradition. See, Paul's entire life up to his conversion, his worldview, his politics, his beliefs made him the least likely person to ever convert and become a follower of Christ. And so, how on earth did the one who persecuted Christians become a Christian? Why the sudden dramatic shift from rounding up Christians and putting them in jail and standing by and approving of the first Christian martyr at the stoning of Stephen in Acts 7? How do you go from that to preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ at risk of your own life and suffering for it? And the answer is simple and historic. In Acts 9, the risen Jesus simply interrupted Paul's life and Paul's agenda and revealed himself to Paul in person, face to face. And Jesus broke through to Paul and his stubborn heart by asking a simple question, Paul, Paul, why do you persecute me? And then Jesus called him to preach his name before the Gentiles. And the gospel, the gospel we see here came by divine interruption, not human imagination. Many of you have had similar experiences. You weren't necessarily looking for God. You were running from God. You were indifferent to God, apathetic to God, maybe even angry with God. And he just pursued you. And he interrupted your life, your life plan, and your agenda. And so you can relate to Paul. But whether your coming to faith was as disrupting as it was for Paul, the point is this. The real gospel comes by divine revelation, not human imagination or invention. As Dr. Riken summarized, the gospel 
is not man's good news about God, it is God's good news for man. So second, it comes by unmerited grace. The gospel comes by unmerited grace, not personal worthiness. What you really have here in the conversion of Saul to Paul is the chief enemy of the church who is breathing out murderous threats against those who follow Jesus, he is being chosen by Jesus to become its chief ambassador. Others were far better qualified and certainly more deserving, but Jesus' call to Paul was by grace. Jesus doesn't just love his enemies, he transforms them into dear friends and is pleased to appoint them to some of the highest of callings. And this is Paul's testimony in verse 15. He set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace. And he was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Now notice also that as a Pharisee before this, Paul would have previously assumed that he was set apart by God because of his devotion to the Mosaic law. But after meeting Jesus face to face, that changed. And no longer was he set apart because of what he did for God. No, he was set apart before he had done anything, it says in verse 15, before he was born, in fact. He was set apart and called by God's grace, and God's grace alone. And so the gospel comes by divine revelation, not human invention. It comes by unmerited grace, not personal worthiness. And third, the gospel comes by God's wisdom in God's wisdom, not human wisdom. See, eventually Paul would come to see God's hand in his life, preparing him for a life of ministry as an ambassador of Christ. But he would only see that in the rearview mirror looking backwards. He would have never anticipated or imagined it looking forward. Because in human wisdom, who would ever pick a guy like Paul? the chief adversary, the famous Pharisee and persecutor of the church. Like I said, who who would have thought to pick the chief adversary, the enemy of the church, the one most dedicated to its destruction to become its defender? No human in his right mind would do that, but in God's wisdom, what better person to explain the purpose of the Mosaic Law than an expert in the Mosaic Law who had been trying to live faithfully according to it his whole life. How beneficial it would be to the young church to have the best Old Testament scholar and law expert help them to connect the dots between law and grace, showing them that the law, while beneficial and good, was limited. It had limited power. It could only expose the depth of our sin in our heart, expose it like an MRI machine, but it could never fix the problem of sin like a great physician. The law, the law was very effective at pointing out our desperate need for a great physician, but it also showed us that we needed someone capable of, of healing and rescuing us after we've proven incapable of healing ourselves through moral discipline, or healing ourselves through religious ritual. So in short, God in His wisdom chose Paul, someone no human in their right mind would ever think to choose because because it was clear Paul hated Christians. 
So that's how the gospel comes, by revelation, not invention, by grace, not personal worthiness, according to God's wisdom, not human wisdom, and lastly, by God's authority, not human authority. That's why Paul says in verse 16, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. Why would Paul need to consult with anyone else? He'd already gotten his standing orders from God in the flesh. The superiority of Jesus' direct and historical call to Paul and the sufficiency of Paul being a firsthand witness to the risen Jesus is why Paul takes the time to clarify in verse 18 uh, that it wasn't until three years after he had, uh, it wasn't until three years later that he went up to Jerusalem to visit Peter and James. And what was he doing during those three years in between? Well, he was preaching the gospel in Arabia, it says in verse 17. And scholars all believe that, that Paul is most likely referring to the kingdom of the Nabataeans, because in those days it was also called Arabia, and it happened to include the city of Damascus, which interestingly is the city mentioned in 2 Corinthians, where Paul is let down through the wall in a basket through a window in the wall to escape the governor. Now, why on earth would Paul need such an escape? Well, it seemed that the city officials wanted to arrest Paul for preaching the gospel of free grace, the same gospel that got him in trouble in every other city. His gospel was a radical and disruptive message. The gospel of grace just turned the normal way people thought of religiously approaching God on its head. Here's the point. Paul started preaching the gospel on the standing order of Jesus long before he ever checked in with the church at Jerusalem. And interestingly, when Paul finally did return to Jerusalem in verse 18 and 19, he only spent 15 days there, and he only saw two apostles, Peter and James. And Paul makes a very big deal about this fact in verse 20. Notice he swears to it. He says, in what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Now, why is Paul being so serious and emphatic on this point? John Stott frames it this way. He says, it it was ludicrous, Paul thought, to suggest that he obtained the gospel from the Jerusalem apostles. He did not receive it secondhand from man, but firsthand from God through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And therefore, it came with God's authority, and it didn't require man's approval. And then in his closing argument, Paul demonstrates that his critics' objections were undermined by their own terms and conditions. For in verses 21 through 24, he says, when the church is in Jerusalem, including the other firsthand witnesses of the risen Jesus— who were directly sent out by Jesus, like Peter and James. And when these Judean Christian leaders heard about the gospel that Paul preached in Syria and Cilicia, what did they do? They glorified God and rejoiced, saying in verse 23, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once destroyed. In other words, they affirmed Paul's gospel as their gospel, which He had previously tried to destroy the one true gospel, the gospel of free grace. So, how does the gospel come to us? By revelation, not invention, human invention. By grace, not personal worthiness. According to God's wisdom, not human wisdom. And by God's authority, not man's authority. So, how does this all apply? Brothers and sisters, 
never doubt the gospel of free grace. Cling to it. Don't allow any philosopher or theologian to talk you out of it. Even though the gospel of free grace goes against the natural inclinations of humanity, even though every other religious approach except Christianity declares that the best we can hope for is good advice for how to get right with God rather than good news of what God has done. And remember, the gospel literally means good news. It doesn't mean good advice. It's about what God has already done for us through His life, death, and resurrection, through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection to save you from sin and death and separation from God, that Jesus took all the sins of the world upon Himself and paid the penalty in full, and then He rose victorious over death, showing that God had vindicated Him, that the payment was accepted, that He is the Savior of the world who can grant us new life. And yes, every other religious system can offer really good advice, but only Christianity can offer good news. Every other religious system tells you what you must do in order to be reconciled with God, but Christianity presents good news saying this is what God has done through Christ to forgive you your sins. See, trust me, it's, it's as if Paul is, is saying here in this passage, trust me, your best efforts will always fall short. So let God do for you, through Jesus Christ, what following the law could never do. I tried that for a very long time. So never doubt the gospel of free grace. Cling to it. Now, that's the answer to the first question, how the gospel comes. The next question is, why does it matter how the gospel comes? Well, it makes all the difference in the world. How so? The fact that the gospel comes by divine revelation and not human invention means that the gospel's truth doesn't depend on our subjective experience. See, people recognize that we can take or leave other people's wise ideas about God. After all, they're only human speculations. And if it helps, great. And if it doesn't, whatever. But people also suspect that they better not ignore God Himself, especially if God is bending over backwards to communicate Himself, not just generally, but personally, so that you might know Him. See, if that's true, that would mean that the gospel is something to be reckoned with, whether you believe it or not, that Jesus' payment for sin is real, that God's forgiveness is real, what Jesus said about heaven and hell is real, and His victory over death is real. It's not just a great story. It also happens to be true. Now, secondly, the fact that the gospel comes by grace and not personal worthiness means that it is available for everyone and everyone needs it. You are never so messed up or so far away from God that you can't receive God's grace, and at the same time, you're never so put together that you don't need it. Third, the fact that the gospel comes by God's wisdom and not man's wisdom means that that we need to learn to expect the unexpected. God often interrupts our lives in unwelcome ways. 
and He changes the lives of people we would least likely expect or least likely think that He could rescue or save. I remember a guy named Don, my frat brother. Trust me when I tell you, I never, ever, ever, ever believed Don would believe in Jesus. But because Don liked a pretty girl who convinced him to come to our Bible study at our frat, he came to know the Lord. And then he married that godly woman, became an elder in his church, and became one of the most generous sacrificial leaders of our college ministry. And then there's Tom. Tom was an atheist who just loved debating with people until a pretty girl he liked dared him to talk to me. I was a campus minister at the time. And uh, we would get together over coffee, and slowly Tom's questions would move from skepticism to curiosity, and he too became a Christian. He went into the marketplace, and years later he joined me in ministry. And I actually found out from a friend of mine that in the sabbatical of the president of Disciple Makers, he became the president of Disciple Makers. Wow. I would have never thought, Tom. (laughs) The gospel comes according to God's wisdom, not man's wisdom. And the fact that the gospel comes with God's authority and not man's authority means you don't have to worry much if those who seem important reject and ridicule it. There will always be people smarter than you, like the Apostle Paul, who believe in the gospel. But as a group, the the worldly wise and intelligent, the elites, the prestigious people have a tendency of dismissing the gospel. Paul said it well in 1 Corinthians 2, 6 and 8. He said, we speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The gospel comes with God's authority, so you do not need the approval of self-important people or prestigious institutions. If you don't have their approval, don't let it bother you. Besides, instead of receiving the gospel, worldly wise people often try to find ways to get around it. And this leads to our third point. How do people try to get around the gospel, and how effective are they in their efforts? And there are many ways to try to get around the gospel. I worked on college campuses for 20 years. I've seen a lot of different attempts. In Paul's situation, Jewish traditional uh, practice and ritual was, was a stumbling block. People, people wanted to change the gospel, making it no gospel at all, because it offended Jewish traditions. But what have been the stumbling blocks over the past 100 to 200 years? And we can't cover all attempts to, you know, tone down the gospel, get around it. But I want to summarize two biggies. One, an attempted philosophical toning down of the gospel, and one, an attempted sociological workaround of the gospel. And we'll look at these both in theory, first in theory, and then in practice, and how, despite those who hold these positions and all the predictions that it would be toxic to Christianity, it really hasn't worked out as successfully as expected, and why robust forms of biblical Christianity continue to spread around the world. So first, in theory, the philosophical or the philosophy and the sociology are intertwined. Most philosophers argued that despite religious believers claim to the contrary, all religions and thus all religious systems are nothing more than human social constructs created to explain things that we can't understand because we're too ignorant. 
Now, by applying the principles of evolutionary theory to the study of religion, sociologists of the 19th and 20th centuries became very committed to the theory that religion systems and religious ideas evolve as the human race evolves. In other words, primitive cultures would have primitive religions full of superstition. Primitive cultures would have simple conceptions of gods, you know, the god of rain, the god of war, the god of fertility, not high gods over all the earth, but lower gods over regions like Moab or Egypt or the river or the sky. Primitive gods, uh, primitive cultures would also worship immature gods, right? Finicky gods who didn't really care that much how you lived, but whose attention you could get through rituals and whose anger you could appease through sacrifice. And sociologists theorize that as people evolved, more advanced cultures would develop more advanced religions and more sophisticated conceptions of God. In other words, a high God of superior wisdom and power who created the whole universe. And such a high God would most certainly have a high moral standard and care about how his worshipers live and treat each other, unlike the primitive gods who were moody and immature and didn't care how bipeds lived. You get the general idea of the attempt philosophically and sociologically to work around the gospel. Philosophically, all religions are a human construct, maybe a psychological projection. Sociologically, religious systems evolve as people and cultures evolve from simple to complex, from lower to higher gods. Now, the enlightened assumption was since many claims of divine revelation are demonstrably false, no claims of divine revelation should be believed. And the enlightened implication of that assumption was that while every religious society claims to have knowledge of God, those claims can tell us nothing about God. They only tell us about the condition of the culture, whether it's primitive or advanced, and what people think about God and what they speculate. Now, before we get into how effective these ideas have been in practice, it didn't take long for people to recognize an inherent fallacy. Let me mention one. False claims about divine revelation do not negate true claims of divine revelation any more than counterfeit currency, right? Any more than counterfeit currency would um, make real currency invalid. In fact, counterfeit currency is only worthwhile if you have real currency worth counterfeiting. And postmodernists reacted differently, right? They didn't They weren't bothered by the inherent fallacy of the arguments. They were more bothered by the cultural insensitivity of it. Postmodernists believe labeling cultures as more or less evolved and religions as lower or higher sounded imperialistic and thus immoral. And they asked, who? Who has the right to judge one religion primitive and another more advanced? Every religion has its own truth, as does every person. You cannot say my religion is wrong. I cannot say your religion is wrong. And to illustrate the point, postmodern philosophers borrowed an old Jain Dharma parable. You've probably heard of it. It's become very popular about the blind men and the elephant, right? God is the elephant. All religions are like blind men holding different parts of the elephant, Uh, Maybe you have Muslims holding the trunk saying, no, it's a snake, and you have Christians holding the air, no, it's a fan, and you have someone else holding the, the leg saying, no, it's a tree. You get the point. Anyone who insists that their view of God is correct is a fool. To be wise, surrender any exclusive claims to the truth. 
Now, on first appearance, that sounds like a substantial argument. However, the parable falls apart with a simple question. How do you know God is an elephant? You can only know that if you see the whole truth and believe all others are blind. But in doing so, you deny to others what you insist for yourself, the ability to know the truth and to judge all other belief systems accordingly. And so the parable is self-defeating. It unintentionally proves the opposite, and it actually supports the Christian perspective that you can know truth. How so? Well, just ask the question by taking it the next step. How do you know God's an elephant? Have you seen God face to face? Now, I'm still waiting for a postmodernist who says he's seen God face to face to maintain a relativist position. But Christians have a different answer to that question, don't we? Paul was answered, have you seen God face to face? And Paul says, yeah, I wasn't looking for him. And he showed up and he confronted me and it was an unwelcome interruption, but it changed everything. And he wrote about it in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, saying, for the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, that creator God, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, where? In the face of Jesus Christ. See, the good news of Christianity is that we do have the opportunity to see the face of God when we look at Jesus, and He is amazing. So those are the key sociological and philosophical attempts to get around the gospel in theory. How have such attempts worked out in practice? Practically, efforts to tone down the gospel have been tried in various branches of the church again and again and and again, uh, because enlightened people who no longer believe it's reasonable to expect other people to believe in things like the authority of the Bible and miracles, after all, you know, they've bought into the theory that all religions are merely social constructs, not divine revelation. And so they argued, these branches of the church have argued that for Christianity to survive, it must change. It must change its theology. And if it does not change and get with the times, it would die. Now, as in Paul's day, most recognized this change would be not a mere tweaking of the gospel, but the creation of a new religion that is Christian in name only. Practically speaking, the results of this approach seem surprising to everyone except those who cling to the gospel of grace. In other words, those who predict the demise of Christianity unless you change it, when they changed Christianity, they saw their churches not fill up with people, but they saw their pews empty, and they lost members year after year. And churches that held to the fundamentals of the gospel, despite warnings of their demise, grew year after year. Why? Well, it might be because Jesus seems to be the head of his church. He really is risen, and people have tried to bury him once, and that didn't last very long. And as the book of Revelation demonstrates and the gospel of John affirms, Jesus promises he will establish his church by pruning off the dead branches and causing the branches that continue to abide in him to bear more fruit. And that promise is played out again and again and again in church after church. Also, it turns out that people aren't as gullible as you think. They discern a real difference between a God who really exists and has revealed himself in time and history and mere human 
wish projection. See, when you're diagnosed with a terminal illness, the enlightened message of the gospel that, that Jesus was a misunderstood rabbi who just had wonderful stories full of meaning can't really help you very much when you're facing your own death. But if the life of Jesus is God's plan for our broken world, and if the cross is God's plan to deal with the problem of sin, and if the resurrection really happened and proves that God's plan to overcome death is working, that helps when you're facing terminal illness. It gives you hope that this world is not all there is. It's just the beginning. And the real gospel changes everything. So efforts to tone down the gospel in some branches of the church to save Christianity only cause those churches to be pruned and believing churches, gospel churches, to thrive. What about the practical efforts to work around the gospel in the academy, not the church? Social scientific theories of religion have not turned out to be as toxic for biblical Christianity as expected. People thought, you know, the secularization hypothesis, as people become more educated, everyone's just going to abandon Christianity. But Dr. Rodney Stark, a famous and controversial social scientist, initially assumed this humanistic perspective that all religions are mere social constructs useful for their time and they change as needed because they evolve as people and cultures evolve. But in 1980, well, in 1980, he wrote a book about the evolutions of the God because he, he regarded all divine re revelation as purely uh, a psychosocial event. But in 2007, after decades of research, he changed his perspective entirely and wrote a book not called The Evolution of the Gods, but The Discovery of God. And what caused Stark's 180-degree turn? It's because he studied the work of anthropologists over the 19th and 20th centuries and discovered that the evidence pointed not to religious evolution, but to religious degradation. How so? Studying the work of Andrew Lang, who discovered through his research that primitive humans were not godless savages with inane religions, as people suspect it, but as we learn their language and learn their beliefs, most primitive people groups believed in morally concerned high gods and had a surprising elaborate belief about creation. And Dr. Paul Redin corroborated Lang's work in 1927, writing, no one today seriously denies that many primitive peoples have belief in a supreme creator. And then in 1967, George Murdoch enabled sociologists to trace the relationship between belief in God and cultural technological advancement when he published coding for all different aspects of culture for over 563 cultures. And shockingly, Murdoch found a clear pattern. Listen to this. The more primitive the tribe, the more sophisticated their conception of God. And at the same time, the more advanced the tribe, the more primitive and superstition, superstitious its practices. It was the exact opposite of what people expected. And Stark was shocked by the data. This was not theory. This was actual evidence. How is it possible that the earliest religions had far more sophisticated conceptions of God than did later civilizations such as Egypt and Greece? And the only sustained effort to provide an answer was work being done by, by Catholic scholars led by William Schmidt, Wilhelm Schmidt, at the University of Vienna. And this group published a multi-volume series which caused widespread consternation among secular anthropologists 
because they suggested, and I quote, at the dawn of humanity, all religions were alike. Everyone knew the same God. It is the variations from one religion to another that reveal the insertion of human inventions, of misunderstanding and a faulty transition from generation to generation, an additional source of variation being the subsequent revelations as humans became capable of better comprehending God. Wow. In this way, Schmidt showed how snugly the huge ethnographic literature of primitive religions fit the account in Genesis of the creation and the fall. And Stark concludes, Schmidt's thesis was brilliantly argued and massively documented. And it so frightened many secular-minded anthropologists that some of them, like Paul Radin, recanted his previous research. And most of the rest simply disavowed the possibility. We, we, they threw up that we'll never explain how the origins or similarities of the religions among the earliest people happened. And Dr. Stark realized that such convenient changes of heart expose an underlying anti-biblical bias that refused to consider any evidence that didn't already fit with the narrative of social Darwinian practices and beliefs. So efforts to undermine biblical Christianity encourage Christians and to encourage Christians to tone down the message of the Bible have not worked as well as they were supposed to, neither in theory nor in practice. Some closing applications. If you're a Christian, be encouraged. Take comfort. Don't just take comfort that biblical Christianity continues to prove credible, but, but share what you know with others who have misconceptions and misunderstandings that they may be pre, that may be preventing them from embracing Jesus Christ and the gospel. Engage in conversation. Share with them what you learn. Give an answer to those who ask you about the reason for the hope that is within you. And if you don't identify as a Christian, I would encourage you to take a serious first look at Jesus or maybe a second look. Continue to come to church. Ask questions, talk with a pastor, ask a Christian leader or a friend that brought you what you can read and how you can learn more. And let me leave you with one last thought. Working on college campuses, I heard people ask for proof of God's existence regularly. A watertight argument they wanted. Now, secular um, philosophers and biblical theologians both agree that you really can't form a watertight argument for anything, because every belief system, every worldview requires faith, no matter what it is, whether you're atheist, agnostic, Christian Jew, or Muslim, or Hindu. Dr. Tim Keller, who spent decades talking to young elite professionals in New York City, asked a related question, which is, well, what if God doesn't work that way? What if He doesn't work by giving you airtight arguments for his existence? What if instead of giving you an airtight argument, he gives you an airtight person? And millions have found Jesus to be exactly that, the airtight person and those who never believed that God would become man and walk on earth. Didn't even want to say God's name when they saw Jesus face to face. They believed. The resurrection changed everything and Paul is one of them, and he said, if you want to know 
about the knowledge of the glory of God, look to the face of Jesus Christ, and you will know there's a God of glory. Let us pray. Thank you, God. Thank you for revealing yourself to us. We could never know you unless you did. Thank you for coming to earth in the person of Jesus so that we could behold your glory, receive your mercy, and be changed like Paul was changed by your grace. And I pray that those here this morning trusting in you through looking to your son Jesus Christ would find great comfort in the gospel of free grace and that their faith would be strengthened this morning. And I pray for those who do not know you. I pray that you would draw them to yourself, that they would have the courage to take an honest look at the person of Jesus Christ and find in him the knowledge of the glory of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.